This time on Created Equal Season 3, Writers on Race. I talk with Colson Whitehead, the two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Nickel Boys and Underground Railroad. It was founded on the principle, We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That all men are created equal. All men are created equal. We talk about how the election of Donald Trump served as inspiration for him writing The Nickel Boys, and in turn, how Whitehead's book helped his readers understand the racial inequity that he sought to reveal and explore in the novel. Well, you know, it's all, it's all one moment. If you're writing about police brutality or inequities in the justice system, uh, in a book set in Jim Crow like The Nickel Boys, or you're inspired by um, the election of Donald Trump, uh, you're not being prescient, you're describing it the way it is. And so, you know, we've never, we never escaped our, 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 our terrible situation with regards to race. And so if you write about um, racial inequities, uh, they're always current because we, we never make any real progress. Hmm. So Nickel Boys is set in the 1960s in Florida, and it tells the story of two boys who are at a reform school called Nickel Academy. That reformatory is actually based on the Florida School for Boys where there are more than 50 unmarked graves that were found there in 2011. Uh, tell us how you were attracted to this story uh, and why you decided this was the time to tell it. It was the summer of 2014, and um, you know we were capturing a lot of these police brutality incidents on videotape. And later that summer in August, um, they were... Uh, excavating the site of this reform school, the Dozier School for Boys, and they found these unmarked graves. And it seemed that there's one place uh, like this reform school, how many other police brutality um, events are, are we missing? And I was shocked I never heard of Dozier. You know, it was covered in Florida papers a lot, but not nationally. And it seemed um, worthy of telling. You know, the, the, the campus was segregated. Uh, there was a black part and a white part. And all the survivors who came forward once the school was closed, to talk about their experiences 30 years, 20 years before, were white. And I wondered what kind of story I could get out of the black part of campus, the untold part of campus. Hmm. Uh, in the book, uh, Elwood, who's the, the, one of the main characters, of course, and the protagonist, um, gets caught up in a, a mistake. He does something that he's not supposed to do, uh, but... It, the rest of his life is patterned in a way that would suggest he was headed for great success. And that one mistake, of course, derails him and sends him to this reformatory, but also just absolutely ruins his life. And for me, uh, reading that story just reminds me of the greater sort of message there that in, in America, if you're black— uh, it doesn't matter all of the things that you do that you're supposed to do. Uh, we are we are one mistake away. We are one uh, miscalculation away from absolute ruin and and tragedy. And and Elwood uh, really captures that in in a in a very, I think, searing and and important way. 
Well, you know, his mistake isn't much of a mistake. He's just hitchhiking with the wrong person. He has no idea that the, right. the car is stolen. And, of course, in the 60s, people hitchhiked all the time. And he's a, you know, he's a goody-goody. He's a good student. He's actually taking uh, college classes, even though he's in high school. And he's en route to the college campus when, he's, uh, uh, when he hitchhikes and the car is stopped and it turns out to be stolen. So, um, so he's sent to this reform school um, through a miscarriage of justice. And, you know, I wanted to speak to the situation befalling so many young people of color. You know, we're just walking down the street, we're stopped by police, and then uh, you're reaching for your wallet. They say you're going for a gun and uh, you get shot. You know, so many innocent encounters can escalate to something lethal um, just because you happen to leave five minutes later or five minutes early and encounter the wrong, uh, the wrong policeman. So, you know, so he, you know, his situation, I think, speaks to so many, you know, so many people. Yeah, yeah. Um, the brutality that he experiences at the academy is is quite vivid in in the book. Uh, talk about why you made the scenes uh, of him encountering this this violence uh, so clear and and so vivid, and what message, I guess, you're trying to send there. Well, you know, with the Underground Railroad, you know, my previous novel, which is about slavery, uh, there's a lot of brutality mm-hmm. and, and, and the violence because that's how the slave system was upheld. That's the fact of the story. And I want to be true to the slave experience. And so um, it's not Gone with the Wind where, you know, a white lady is being self-actualized <laughs> against a backdrop of slavery. It's like, oh, they're burning my house down. <laughs> you know, they should burn your house down because you traffic in human flesh. Um, so... The brutality in that book was realistic, and it has to be realistic in the Nickel Boys because I am talking about a real life life place, and the mm-hmm. brutality suffered by real life people. Um, but I don't actually, you know, I know a lot of the violence happens sort of off the page, mm-hmm. um, so it's not described because I'm not trying to exploit it. But in order to, you know, to describe the world accurately and realistically, I do have to, um, you know, show how they actually lived, and then I can get on to the human story between Elwood and his his friend Turner. Um, once the facts are settled, I can get to the, their sort of philosophical argument about optimism and pessimism and, and how we can get a, along in a world that wants to destroy us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that relationship between Elwood and Turner and that tension uh, between the two of them is a tension that, that plays out all the time in, in black America. This idea uh, of Elwood's that if you do the things that you're supposed to do, uh, even in circumstances of hardship, uh, that somehow the institution, the faith in the institutions will carry you through. Uh, Turner has a much more uh, sort of dim view of, of all of that and, and believes that the deck is inexorably stacked uh, against, against black people. Talk about that relationship and that tension in the larger culture. Yeah, well, I mean, um, you know, Elwood, you know, seems to be the sort of larger-than-life person. He's so pure and has such a lofty idea of humanity. But he was inspired by real-life people like Dr. King. You know, he's, in the early 60s, he's seen Dr. King and his cohort marching and sitting and, and, and boycotting and, and making, making change. And so um, he does have a model of how the system can be changed. Um, and then Turner, he's an orphan, and that's why he sent to this reform school. It was a, a warehouse for people who were delinquents, but also war to the state who had nowhere else to go. So he believes he's 
you know, a survivor, he's lived by his wits and doesn't believe that people change, that systems change. And you can't, you know, really live wholly in one camp or the other. You have to borrow from both. Um, it's easy to be pessimistic because there's so much evidence that, you know, people are pretty terrible and the world's pretty terrible. Um, but you also have to have hope. You know, I, I have children, and I have to hope that the world that they're growing up in is better than... Uh, you know, the one I grew up in, the same way my parents and grandparents who existed in a world of uh, much more severe racial oppression had to believe that I would grow up in a, in a better place. And so you can't survive without that hope. Um, and yet every day you're confronted with the evidence that undermines that uh, that idea. Yeah. Uh, there's also a, a sort of narrative device that you use uh, in, in sort of... Um, uh, making it clear that that Elwood and Turner are are not all that separate either, right? Uh, that that they kind of are one, and, and, and the, the narrative twist that that is revealed in the book really sort of cements the idea that they are much more connected uh, in their in their ideals um, than than they are separated by the tensions in in the separate in in the differences in their beliefs. Uh, talk about how you've Sort of pull that through in the in the book. Are, well, the, yeah, the, the I mean, singularity. you can't you yeah. can't have one. You can't live in you completely with one philosophy of how to be in the world. You do you need that that mix. And so, um, I think most of us live with have our Elwood Elwood selves and our, our Turner selves. And sometimes one is winning out more than the other. Um, but uh, to live you know completely in an idealistic fashion and believe everything will work out. Uh, or to live in a completely pessimistic fashion and nothing will work out um, is not sustainable. And so we do have to borrow from reality and also our, our more idealistic selves. Mm, yeah. Uh, I want to talk about the torture building in the book at the Academy. Uh, it's nicknamed the Ice Cream Factory by the white boys who were there and the White House by the African-American boys. Can you talk about why you chose to make that distinction? It seems like it's saying something about the differences in the way that we experience things as Americans and the differences in the way that we interpret uh, different experiences. Sure. I mean, yeah, those are real life details. Um, at, at the Dozier School, uh, once you know, there's an investigation, and they said you can no longer beat the students, which seems perfectly reasonable. So they moved uh, the beatings to a utility shed called the White House. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and both the white and black campuses call it the White House. But the, the white kids also called it the ice cream factory uh, as a joke because you came out with bruises of every color. Um, and, you know, and this, you know, I like to make up details, but then some, some things you can't compete with. Obviously, uh, the White House has so much different kinds of, of, of resonance that um, I had to keep that real-life detail and, and let, it work, let it work for the book. Um, you know, I, I was doing a, a, um, a, a talk last summer, and someone in the Q&A stood up and said, you know, I wasn't that dozier, but I was in another reform school. And we also call it the ice cream house there because of the same thing, the bruises that you came out with. And so this kind of grim survivor humor um, uh, was coming up simultaneously in, 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 in all, sorts of all sorts of different places. And you know, the, the kind of joking that you do in order to um, get through the day and make the severity of the situation not so terrible um, happens everywhere. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, when we see Elwood uh, in the future in the book, uh, he is not any longer at the reformatory. He is uh, an adult trying to, to put his life back together and, and succeed. And then at the end, uh, we learn that... Well, let's just say, yeah, let's not talk too much about the ending. Okay, <laughs> okay. Yeah. we don't want to spoil that, right? <laughs> we want people to read the book. Uh, but, but it does seem uh, though, as though the experience at the academy should have eroded his faith and belief in the civil rights movement and all of these things. And yet he's still clinging to these things and believes in them. Um, talk about why, why, he's, why he stays with well, you know, if There's no hope why I go on. You know, I, I think I've, I've written three books in a row that sort of address that question. You know, uh, a zombie apocalypse book. Um, if you don't mm -hmm. believe there's a place of safety, why do you keep on the struggle? And that was zone mm -hmm. one 10 years ago. Underground Railroad, Cora the Slave, runs north. And she has to believe, even though she's never been off the plantation, that there's a place of safety, uh, a place of freedom. And it's abstract, and there's no proof of it, uh, but she runs anyway. And then with um, Elwood and, and, and Turner, uh, they have to believe that, um, that justice is possible, uh, that you can make something of your life despite everything that the world throws your way, because if you don't, what's the point of going on? And so, you know, uh, two-thirds of the book take place in 1963 and 64, um, which I chose because it's the height of the civil rights movement, but also the height of Jim Crow, and those, those two contradic contradictory energies are fighting each other. Um, and then that means a third of the book takes place as I follow Elwood in the 70s and 80s and 90s as he tries to make a life for himself. Um, he's been put off track by this traumatic experience and has to find, his, find a way to make himself whole. You know, can he do it? So many of the, the Dozer boys uh, don't make it. Um, there's drug abuse and alcoholism, and uh, they're never able to get over this trauma that's uh, derailed them. And so it was important for me to narrate um, uh, progress to a whole self. How do you come back from a traumatic event? How do you find a way to love and, and be loved? Yeah, Colson, as I said uh, earlier, I think uh, you read this book and this story uh, of, of Elwood, and uh, again, it wins the Pulitzer Prize in May, and then uh, very quickly after, we learn the story of George Floyd in Minneapolis, which, uh, which lays bare in reality the kind of overreaction, the disproportionate reaction to, uh, to blackness and black existence uh, in this country. I mean, the, the, the similarities, the parallels across, uh, across your work and, and reality right now are just uh, so powerful. I wonder what reactions you get to, uh, to this work from, from white people. Well, you know, I mean, uh, you know, some audiences, you know, see themselves in in Cora, see themselves in Elwood and Turner, and in some audiences uh, are surprised at uh, how slavery worked or the capriciousness of, uh, capriciousness of, of Jim Crow. Early on, um, when the book came out, I, I did a reading, and in the, in the novel, uh, Elwood is stopped by the police, and then we cut to his first day at uh, the institution, uh, the Nickel Academy, the stand-in for Dozier. And there was a white lady in her 50s who came to the talk, and she said, you know, how come you didn't show the trial? Like, how come you skipped over that? Um, am I just being naive that there was any chance that he would um, 
uh, get a fair trial. Mm-hmm. And uh, I skipped it because, no, obviously not. <laughs> and and uh, <laughs> you are being naive to think that uh, a poor black 16-year-old um, is going to get anything but railroaded by a, a white judge in the Jim Crow, Florida of, of 63. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, for me, it was an obvious artistic choice. But for this, you know, uh, for this white lady... Um, uh, it causes some confusion because, like, there's really no way out. And no, by page 33 of the book, we know that um, uh, many avenues of escape are, are, are closed down. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll have more of my conversation. As newsrooms across the country close their doors, independent and unbiased journalism is more crucial than ever. We rely on you just like you rely on us. This spring fundraiser, join us in protecting public media. Your support keeps us thriving. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap donate in our mobile app. With Colson Whitehead. Colson, this summer, uh, the WDET Book Club uh, is reading Invisible Man uh, by Ralph Ellison, which is another text that we think helps uh, illuminate some of the things that we're dealing with right now uh, in in American dialogue and American culture. Um, there are, to me, a lot of similarities uh, between Ellison's work uh, and some of the themes that you have worked with over the nine books uh, that that you've that you've published. Uh, but but this concept of invisibility uh, that he deals with, of course, uh, with the nameless character in Invisible Man reminds me very much of, uh, of Elwood and Turner uh, and the concept of being seen, of trying to be seen, of not being able to be seen uh, as a black person uh, in America. I wonder if you can talk about, uh, about Ellison and Invisible Man and how it connects to the work that you're doing today. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh He's a very important figure for me, um, and you know, coming across his work in seventh grade, you know, was very instructive. It was uh, an English class, and one of those books that has short stories. So it was go from Shirley Jackson's The Lottery mm-hmm. to uh, the first chapter of Invisible Man. They they sort of excerpted uh, that first chapter of the novel as a as a short story. And if you remember, you know, it's pretty bizarre. Uh, the, the black boys are wrestling on an electrified mat. Mm-hmm. There's a, a woman with an American flag on her chest, uh, on her stomach, walking around. And uh, it's very surreal, and, uh, which I found very attractive, even when I was like 12 years old. But also I, I thought, you know, here's this weirdo black guy writing, writing fiction. I'm a weirdo black guy. Maybe I can uh, <laughs> you know, step up and get my own weird stories on, on the page. And then, of course, coming to the book, the full novel in, in college, um, you know, in the same semester with, with Toni Morrison, mm. uh, you know, it was just really energizing and inspiring to find different ways of talking about slavery, different ways of talking about being black in cities, black in America. Um, you know, they're both, uh, you know, such, such powerful, powerful talents and inspired, definitely inspired my generation and uh, the previous generation of writers. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the other, uh, I, I mean, and you've, you've just kind of hinted at this, uh, one of the other real connections I see between you and Allison is that uh, affinity for surreality. So many of your books uh, really 
use that narrative tool to wonderful effect underground railroad of course uh, uh, is is the most recent uh, to do that talk about how you how you see the the power of that surreality to give different kinds of life or different dimension uh, to real life issues uh, things like slavery or things like uh, reformatory racial brutality in the 1960s yeah, I mean, you know, surreality, absurdity, these are, are features of our, our daily life. And so they become a form of realism. Um, you know, I grew up wanting to be a writer because, you know, before I read that section of Ellison, because of Marvel Comics and Stephen King and Ursula K. Le Guin, uh, The Twilight Zone. So fantasy literature, horror, science fiction uh, made, me, made me want to write. Um, and then when I got older, I was attracted to writers that, that you know, we're able to move between realism and, and fantasy uh, very quickly and with much dexterity, like Gabriel Garcia Marquez. You know, Toni Morrison has a, a ghost yes. in Beloved. And, of course, uh, The Invisible Man's Adventures have these very uh, absurd moments. He's in a, a, a factory that makes white paint. His room is so studded <laughs> with uh, uh, a thousand-something uh, light bulbs underground. Um, and so um, uh, accepting the fact that our, our lives are often... Um, a bit fantastical, uh, I, I, I think is a, is a great gift. And I learned that very early from reading uh, writers who use fantasy. Mm. Uh, also, of course, uh, you were honored with uh, the Pulitzer Prize for the Nickel Boys in May. It is your second, uh, second in a row, in fact, uh, because uh, you won for Underground Railroad as well. You're only the fourth author uh, in American history to, to do that two times, uh, uh, I, I just, I mean, obviously, congratulations, but uh, I, I, I would love to hear uh, how that uh, has sort of sat with you. I mean, it's, it's a remarkable achievement. Yeah, it's pretty crazy, but it's been a crazy <laughs> year. Uh, You've got an impeachment, a quarantine, a plague. Um, uh, the president can't walk down a ramp. I mean, uh, I feel like life has gone, you know, very strange the last six months. And so, uh, <laughs> I put the Pulitzer in with that. You know, it's hard to step back sometimes and think, is this all really happening? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so, uh, when you were here in Detroit at Marygrove College, uh, I, I asked you then what you were working on, uh, after, Underground Railroad, uh, and you said that you had three books in your mind uh, that that <laughs> that you were sort of mulling and and trying to choose between, uh, and obviously you settled on on the Nickel Boys, and I think you mentioned that one of them was about reformatory, uh, but I'm also I want to put the same question to you now: uh, What are you thinking about, and what is what is maybe next? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, that, that was a while ago, and I, I was working on the Nickel Boys at, at that point, and uh, I hadn't finished yet. Um, so uh, 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 I, I, I'm putting the final touches on a, a novel, uh, a crime novel. It takes place in Harlem in the 60s. So, you know, I finished Nickel Boys two years ago, and I've had time to work since then, so I'm, you know, just <laughs> polishing this new story and about to give it, all, give it to my editor. So um, it's very different. Doesn't necessarily, it's not as heavy as the last two books, which was nice, and there's more room for jokes. <laughs> and again, it's a, a crime novel set in New York City. So it was really fun to just 
walk around my hometown and go location scouting. Is this where the hero lives? Mm. Is this where the where his office is? And just you know, try to um, imagine him and all these these landmarks that I, I walk by every day. Mm. Uh, I also wonder uh, how much of yourself you see in these characters uh, you create, uh, Cora and. The Underground Railroad, Elwood in the Nickel Boys, uh, as as an African American, uh, how much of this is your experience, or how much of your experience reflects what we what we see on the pages here? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Sometimes I'm in my books a lot, and my my characters a lot, or the supporting characters a lot, and sometimes not at all. Uh, Cora, you know, has the least amount of me in her, which is mm-hmm. probably why it's my most popular book. <laughs> but uh, in terms of uh, the Nickel Boys, you know, I think Elwood and, and Trey definitely speak to different parts of me. Um, uh, my, my brother recently passed away, and I was sort of processing uh, that when I was writing the book, and we were very close. And so, you know, two boys who uh, are very alike, are very different, uh, who are, are so close. Um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely, me and my brother were in that relationship in, 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 in the book. And sometimes it's useful to draw upon your own life and sometimes not useful at all. You, you try to do what's best for the book. On the next episode, I talk with Carol Anderson, historian, educator, and author of the book, White Rage. We are so focused in on the flames that we miss the kindling. Mm-hmm. We miss the policies, the kinds of policies that systematically undermine African-American citizenship rights and undermine the advancement that African-Americans have had. That's white rage. It's quiet. It's subtle. It's bureaucratic. It's legalistic. Created Equal is a production of WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Our executive producer is Joan Cherry Isabella. Our producers are Jake Neer, Anna Marie Seisling, and Claire Brennan. Our sound engineers are Matt Trevethan and Rowan Niamisto. Our composer and senior editor is Sam Bobian. And our social media and digital assets are done by Maida Stangi and Tony Brown. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson. <laughs>